I'm, as you can see, uh, this meeting is now under new management. Uh, Mary Woods has gone off to catch a plane. Um, I'm Francis Cairncross. I'm the rector of Exeter College. I've been a journalist all my life, so I'm really a hack. Um, I, uh, Mary mentioned at the beginning of her introduction that this was World Philosophy Day. Uh, I was more struck by the fact that this is the year which is the 250th anniversary of the first publication of Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments. Uh, this session, you can see, is called uh, The Political Economy of Change. Uh, political economy uh, was also uh, an Adam Smith phrase, um, a man who felt that economics and philosophy were two uh, issues bound as one uh, and transmuted through politics. Um, earlier this year, I was at a dinner in Edinburgh hosted by Alex Salmond to celebrate this, uh, this 250th anniversary. And among the guests at the dinner, there were also two other uh, winners of the Nobel Prize for economics, not uh, Professor Sen, but two others. Of the, those three people, of the politician of Alex Salmon and the two economists, which was the one, do you think, who had read, the only one who had read the theory of moral sentiments? Anybody want to guess? Alex Salmon, yes. And uh, I, I think that this session should be the session of, 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 of the politics of uh, Amartya's Sen's thoughts, because uh, politicians are the people whose job it is uh, to translate philosophy and economics into the art of the possible. Um, we've already heard from one politician uh, who has eloquently described uh, a manifesto uh, for how this might be done. We're now in a moment about to hear uh, from another politician. I'm rather worried, I have to say, that, uh, about the number of uh, young Labour politicians, I think of Liam Byrne and of David Miliband, who use Sen's phraseology, who talk about capability and talk about uh, 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 equal in what respect, I mean, equality of what. Um, I, I don't know whether this is also true of the Conservative Party, um, but uh, Peter Lilly has been a practitioner of economics uh, in the real world for a very long time. Um, he began his political career um, as PPS to uh, Nigel Lawson. Uh, he had 10 years in ministerial office. Um, he, uh, that included five years in that most difficult of jobs for uh, a minister in those days as Secretary of State for Social Security. He uh, chaired the Globalization and Global Poverty Policy Group, and he is also now co-chair of the Trade Out of Poverty campaign. So he brings to these issues uh, an enormous wealth of practical experience of creating a strategy. Marcel Fafchon on my left has been in Oxford's Department of Economics for the past 10 years. But he is not uh, a mere theoretician because he spent his form the formative years of his career in Africa, uh, predominantly working on issues of rural development and later in India. So he knows a great deal about what happens on the ground where uh, uh, economics meets humanity struggling to make a living. And Alison Evans, on my far left, is the new director of the Overseas Development Institute, a body that has worked very hard to bring together economics and politics uh, in the past, uh, uh, in, in this, the, the length of its, of its career. She is an economist by training, but she has been preoccupied throughout her career by pragmatic issues dealing with poverty and with public policy. So I hope that what we're going to have in the last hour of this uh, session 
is the emergence of a series of issues, of ways in which we can bring together uh, politics, philosophy, and economics, this familiar Oxford trio. And I'm going to start with Peter Lilly. Thank you very much indeed. It's a great privilege to be invited to take part in this, uh, particularly as I'm obviously the token Tory. Uh, when I phoned up uh, Sabina to find out what my role was, she, with exquisite courtesy, said a words to the effect that I'm the grit in the oyster. Uh, and uh, I do recall, actually, as a minister, one thing I discovered on analysing the failures of my predecessors, that where there had been real blunders... It was where a policy had been developed by people who were all true believers in that policy. I therefore made it a practice in my department that if ever I had a policy build committee, I had on it someone who disagreed with the policy to make sure that we knew uh, some of the problems and obstacles we might encounter. And I think I'm here today as uh, a sort of devil's advocate. So to the extent that I say negative things, please uh, only blame me for that and not my co-chairs of Trade Out of Poverty, uh, who undoubtedly would disagree with me since they, uh, on that issue, though we agree entirely on the, uh, the role of trade out of poverty in the campaign, the importance of it, uh, because they're uh, Claire Short, former uh, International Development Secretary, John Battle, a former Labour Minister for both Trade and Foreign Affairs, Ming Campbell, uh, Lord Hastings and myself. So I exempt them. Please don't blame them for anything I say. Uh, I just have one concern about one aspect of the discussion so far, and that is that it reminds me of a story which prevailed in the Treasury when I was a Treasury Minister. Treasury, as you know, is full of extremely brilliant officials who love to have a sound theoretical basis for any policy. And the story goes that a minister came in, a Yes Minister style, and announced that he wanted to introduce a policy initiative and they came out with their normal objection, but minister, it won't work in practice. <laughs> he said, but it does work in practice in the Netherlands and varieties of it in local government in Halifax. And they were a bit taken back by this, but then they replied, that may be so, minister, but will it work in theory? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, there's a slight touch of that about some of our discussion today, and I have worries about theory. First of all, because uh, I am, like James Pennell, a practicing politician, and I want practical answers, as he does, and I have to say, at risk of embarrassing him, I do agree with about 85% of his manifesto, if not more. Uh, I want practical answers when I'm thinking about development to real-world questions. How can aid be made more effective? Is there an optimum level of aid in any country? Does the, amount of aid, uh, the effect of aid uh, decline with increasing amounts, or does it uh, have rising returns? Uh, should we be reducing, as we have been over the last 15 years, the amount of aid going on infrastructure and agricultural development uh, and increasing the amount going on health and education, as has been happening? And if so, how can we explain that a lot of that hasn't been getting through to the poorest people but often to the uh, better-off people in the societies we're trying to help? So there's practical questions I want answers to. The second uh, worry I always have about... Uh, too much of an abstract approach in development economics, is that development already is the last remaining playground on which ideologues of both left and right can play. They can have more influence in development policy than they can anywhere else because it's the one area where policy is little influenced by the voters at home and often little influenced by the voters in the countries uh, to which the policy is being applied. So you have left-wingers, often in the uh, NGOs, who see it as an opportunity to uh, revive socialism in some developing country, uh, even where their own lectors at home have uh, uh, abandoned that. Or at least they can thwart capitalism in developing countries. And on the right, often in the international organizations, the World Bank, IMF, and so on, you see some uh, pure ideological right-wingers, I used to think I was until I met some of these, uh, who, um, who believe that they can experiment in developing countries, rationing health and education by price and so on, even though such policies couldn't even be uttered in the countries from which they come and in which they live. So I don't want to see too much ideology in uh, development policy. I want to see as much practical stuff as possible. Third concern is the disconnect I detect between what Professor Sen says, which I'm 
eager reader when I was doing my policy commission, I began by reading uh, um, Freedom as Development, or Development as Freedom, sorry, uh, Development as Freedom. Um, uh, I read it back to front. Um, uh, <laughs> like one does a thriller. Uh, and uh, he's always immensely pragmatic, very modulated and balanced, uh, a certainly not hostile to the free market. Uh, I often quote him as saying, to be generically against markets would be almost as odd as being generically against conversations between people, even though some conversations are clearly foul and cause problems for others, or even for the conversationalists themselves. So market operations are a normal part of human uh, activity, and it's sad uh, that some people, declaring themselves to be disciples of uh, Amartya Sen, uh, don't move in that direction. He quotes Adam Smith uh, far more frequently than he does Karl Marx, and he usually quotes Karl Marx uh, on the benefits of free markets rather than the reverse. Uh, so uh, I get worried that sometimes the concepts which he has brought before us are misused and abused by those who want to justify micromanagement in developing countries. Uh, I, my fourth concern is that attempts at micromanagement are doomed to failure, I suspect. It's hard enough to macromanage an economy. It's hard enough to influence the rate of growth of an economy. Uh, we've put uh, $2 trillion of aid into the world since the Second World War, and the beneficial effect in terms of growth has been far smaller than such a huge sum ought to achieve. The idea that we can simultaneously micromanage the composition of growth to match a complex weighted average of a matrix of capabilities does seem to me extremely optimistic. My fifth concern is that uh, an abstract approach to development often slides into justifying the liberal imperialist uh, approach that enlightened intellectuals in this country have always taken, and particularly in Oxbridge, uh, that they know best how the benighted natives of these countries we want to help should run their affairs, and uh, they're going to tell them how to do it. And my biggest worry is that that distracts us as a country and us as having influence in developed countries from one of the most important things we can do, which is to offer opportunities to poor countries to trade out of poverty. And now I'm back on message again. Uh, because uh, that was the view which brought um, Ming and Claire and um, Michael and John uh, Battle and me together. Because most countries that have been successful in developing have done so through participating in world trade. It's harder for the poorest remaining countries to follow in their footsteps because the early starters, the Chinas and so on, had the advantage of uh, at least cheap labor through which they could break into the markets where labor was very expensive. The poorest countries following their wake now have to compete with those still cheap labor countries who have now in the meantime built up uh, a critical mass of industrial capacity. So it behoves us as the developed world to open our markets preferentially to the poorest countries with no tariffs, no quotas, free access. We do that to some already in theory. We don't in practice because we then impose rules like rules of origin and phytosanitary rules and so on, uh, which mean that even where they theoretically have free access to our markets, they don't. So we're um, advocating liberalizing those rules, making them ge more generous, simplifying them or re removing them entirely. Uh, I've got a range of other um, non-negotiable demands that we'd like to see, but uh, since I've reached the end of my time, uh, I'd just say that uh, we mustn't allow our ideological obsessions to blind us to the practical things we can do to give opportunities to developing countries. My, 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 my uh, clearest recollection of Professor Sen's um, influence on me was when he uh, presented a lecture at Stanford where he put forth the idea of, uh, of freedom and choice and agency as central to development. And 
Um, I must say that I, I have since then, you know, continued to reflect on that and um, uh, in my work as a development economist and, and um, I was trying to make sense of it within the a framework that I know very well, which is the utility framework. The beauty of the utility framework is that it basically recognizes people's uh, agency. And it, it just recognizes their right to have uh, preferences over bundles of goods, and it judges uh, policy uh, according to whether it satisfies these preferences. It's a, it's a kind of very satisfying ethical and philosophical um, uh, principle, where basically you, ba you, you base policy not on the views of the politicians or the views of the ruler, but rather on, uh, on what people actually need and want. And it is true that this, this framework, uh, uh, the way it's being used too often, is, is ba basically focusing only on income, and that, that is clearly a, a shortcoming because people care also about a lot of things they consume uh, or benefit from uh, that is not uh, privately purchased. Uh, uh, in many countries, healthcare, like this one, is, is largely, uh, 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 you don't pay for a lot of the services you get, even though you certainly value them. There are also lots of things that uh, you, you benefit from through regulation that uh, are not uh, paid for. And so clearly, um, uh, if you want to have a better view, kind of a complete view of, uh, of welfare well-being, we have to include all the things that uh, you benefit from and you value, um, uh, e even though you might not uh, uh, purchase them through the market. So that, I think that's, that's fairly clear. And the, and the framework that we have could, in principle, be augmented to include all these uh, public goods uh, using continent, contingent valuation or perhaps experimental evidence or revealed preferences to, to judge uh, uh, whether people, you know, how, to what extent people value uh, the kind of public goods we're talking about. Sorry. Now, um, and I think that this is, uh, this is important because some of the alternatives uh, like HDLI and things like that uh, which use ad hoc uh, weights and, and uh, what is, what is the Human Development uh, Index, yeah, Development and Life Index, something like that. And these, um, these indices don't um, recognize the fact that countries at different levels of development might have very different preferences with respect to certain types of uh, 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 public goods. For instance, the richer people get, it looks to me, the richer they get, the more they care about very tiny, very small risks. Uh, especially health risks. Uh, they worry a lot about getting something from pesticides, which, you know, or from GM foods or from hormones in livestock production or, uh, and so on. So they, they worry a lot about risks that are relatively small. And if you go to a lot of poor countries, developing countries, this is not something that rates very high on the agenda of most people because they have a lot of uh, very real risk on, on an everyday basis and these very distant risks actually don't seem to worry that, that much uh, certainly, uh, judging by the kind of, you know, uh, uh, way they drive on the road, for instance. Um, now, there are problems with, uh, with putting utility, and uh, which is basically a way of uh, recognizing people's agency and, uh, and preferences uh, uh, centerfold, because, uh, of course, people's preferences can be manipulated to some extent, and there's always a temptation um, among uh, development, development agencies, and I started my my life in development agencies, there's always a temptation to, uh, to say, well, we kind of know what people should need and should want. Uh, why don't we convince them that this actually that's what they need? And so basically uh, you go about and you proselytize whatever your worldview uh, can be. And uh, I've also seen over time, this was done, used to be done by uh, uh, development agencies themselves. Now they have kind of backed away a lot from that. But then now, of course, NGOs are very active, and a lot of them do exactly that. So it's something that worries me, and uh, something that uh, I, I was, I was, you know, I, I was very pleased to find a lot of solace from uh, Professor Sen's work and his emphasis on agency. Um, and, and I thought that was that was very helpful. Now there is a new literature, or something at least uh, that has is hitting economists, uh, which is a literature on subjective well-being. And what this literature, basically literature based on empirical observations of uh, uh, how people answer questions about uh, uh, subjective uh, uh, satisfaction with life, happiness, and so on. And what, you, what comes out of this literature are things like uh, the fact that people seem to judge um, their subjective uh, 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 well-being based on their achievements relative to others and relative to a reference point. And, and, and so the fact that this reference point might move over time means that, you know, 
GDP can, be, can double, uh, their income can double, and they may not necessarily feel that much happier. Now, and, and similarly, they also might judge their achievements based on what others have been able to accomplish uh, in their peer group, whatever they recognize as their peer group, and that generates, if you want, feelings of envy or feelings of, uh, I don't know, pride or contempt, I don't know, uh, depending on which side you are relative to the average. And, and this seems to be, these, these features seem to, uh, to influence how people, how happy and satisfied people seem to be with their life. And, of course, it's very difficult to try to integrate these considerations in uh, policy making. Uh, I have no solution to that, but I have observed that some people have used these arguments to try to say there's no need to do development uh, assistance. I certainly don't agree with that. Uh, and they have got other people uh, who have tried to use these arguments to say we should do redistribution, something I'm more sympathetic to, but I, I still don't know uh, whether the, the subjective uh, foundation should be the one we should use. Going back to choice, um, utility framework can capture a lot of dimensions of choice, but not all of them, because uh, the process by which a decision is reached uh, seems to be also something people value. If you have a child, a four-year-old child, and you, and you know he always eats a chocolate ice cream, it's not a good idea just to order the chocolate ice cream. What you're supposed to do is to say, what kind of ice cream would you like today? And he's going to Chocolate, okay, so you get a chocolate ice cream. So the process matters. Even though you know he's going to eat a chocolate ice cream, it's a good idea to ask him what, what he would like to do. And this is true, of course, also of, of adults. So the process does matter, and the utility framework does not take that into account. It's something that I think I really, really would like to have a way of, uh, of integrating in the utility framework, some formal way of, of, of making that part of the framework. Now, people also make mistakes, so there are lots of government interventions that are based on the idea that uh, people might have well don't have well-defined preferences, or if they have well-defined preferences, uh, they don't always follow them in the choices they make. And, uh, for instance, we ban heroin, uh, uh, we ban cannabis, uh, we ban tobacco from many places, we oblige people to drive with a, with a safety belt, and... Uh, or we might also ban people from jumping off cliffs in Devon. So these are things that we do to protect them from their mistakes. But the question is, how far can you go to protect them from their mistakes? I don't have a, an easy answer to that, but I think it's something that, that is clearly uh, important if you think about welfare as based on choice. Uh, another, another simple observation, people seem to uh, like to impose some constraints on, their, on themselves. Um, think of uh, diet, for instance, or dietary restrictions. A lot of people have dietary restrictions. They used to be based on religion and still are for quite a few people. But now that, you know, for many of us, there are no more religious dietary restrictions, people seem to reinvent them. They reinvent themselves as vegetarian or vegetarian plus fish or, uh, or they don't eat milk or they don't just, you know, they just come up with some uh, usually, uh, and this can also change. It's like carbs, they can change. So I think uh, if you're going to think in terms of value of choice and people actually like to self-contrain themselves, it's something that I find very puzzling, but something we, we, I would like to have some guidance on. Um, finally, and I'm, before I conclude, um, this is also casual empiricism perhaps, but just like people arrival in their subjective well-being, they derive some satisfaction from doing well and doing well relative to others. I, it's also my impression that they actually derive some satisfaction from having more choice than others, um, and uh, possibly also from restricting other people's choices. Um, so they might, I remember, uh, you know, building code in Britain allows a lot, a lot of, gives a lot of freedom to neighbors to have a say on what you can do or can, can, can or cannot do. I have one, my neighbor complained on the build, you know, were building something next to my house, and the other neighbor complained that in the building plan there was a tree, and the tree was plan planned to be a walnut tree, and there were too many walnut trees in the area, and therefore she objected to the fact that they were not going to plant a walnut tree. Like, well, I'm sorry, but, you know, well, you know it's not your business, really, what kind of tree they plant. So I think that, uh, um, but, so if that is true that people like to restrict other people's choices, and we have a democracy, then over time, there's going to be more regulation to restrict people's choices because that's what people like to do. And so this is something I worry about, uh, this kind of rampant increase in, in, in regulation, of course, always justified through 
some kind of externality, but how far do we go? Uh, and, uh, and just, I guess, just a, a very obvious observation, there are lots of developing countries where you actually have, of course, you, don't, you might not have a lot of political freedom, but you're going to have a lot of everyday freedom. You can drive anywhere you want. You can drive any car you want, any vehicle you want. You can smoke anywhere you want. You can you know, spit anywhere you want. There are lots of things you'll be able to do that you couldn't do in a, in a developed economy. And so I think that uh, that might actually be a symptom of that. So to conclude, um, there, are some, there are some really interesting but also difficult ethical and philosophical issues raised by welfare analysis. The utility framework deals with many of them in a consistent way. It recognizes individual agency and so doing it encourages policies that aim to increase welfare by increasing uh, material well-being in a way that matches people's preferences. And I think that's very valuable, something I don't want to lose. It also encourages policies that, policies that increase choice by increasing income. Income is basically choice. That's what it is, it's, 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 as I learned from Professor Sen. Um, I think it should be, whatever framework we have, should, be, should include the utility people derived from public goods. Um, but uh, as an approach, I think it's more ethically satisfying than many alternatives. For instance, using propaganda to manipulate pre people's preferences through awareness campaign or education campaign or uh, various uh, campaigns or by restricting their choice to what is good for them, you know, like Salvation Army style. So basically you say, oh, well, I'm, you, know, you shouldn't drink, you shouldn't smoke, you shouldn't do this. We're going to do what is good for you. It's a kind of paternalistic view of development, which I also objected. So I, I really thank Professor Sense for, for putting freedom and choice back, uh, you know, very squarely at the center of the agenda, and it's still revolutionary today. It will always will be, basically. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, and um, I, you'll detect a slight perhaps shift in perspective, but first I want to say thank you very much for inviting me to participate today. And it's a real privilege to sit here on the same panel, um, obviously with Professor Sen, but also uh, such important thinkers from within the political realm and the realm of, of economic research. Um, Marcel, I, as you were speaking, I had a slight sense that I might be sitting next to rational economic man, <laughs> and I thought you might be it. And I thought, well, how many... Um, how does that go down in the messy world of, of politics and policy, which is something I'm going to try and reflect on a little bit. Um, uh, with all due respect to those of you who inhabit this world much more than I do, um, but this is very much from a perspective of uh, where I work in ODI. Uh, we are a policy think tank. We very much locate our work at the interface between research, evidence, and policy making in support of international development and humanitarian issues. And as part of doing that, we spend a fair amount of time thinking about how ideas generated out of high-quality research make it into, or don't make it into, uh, the policy-making process. And I'm going to make a few reflections about that as a way of perhaps uh, rounding off this, this panel. Let me just start, though, with one of the backdrop issues for this uh, set of panels today, which has been the financial crisis. And at the beginning of the financial crisis, um, there was quite a lot of talk, um, including within the international development world, about this being a game changer for how we think about development. This is a crisis of capitalism. This is going to fundamentally shift the calculus around which we've thought about growth and development in particularly low-income countries for the future. And there was, you know, in the blog sphere, it was full of talk of, of definancialization, of de-linkage, uh, de, uh, alternative models of growth, and the need to move beyond the metrics of monetary welfare. Um, and to talk of uh, new concepts for dealing with systemic shocks and for dealing with the notion of resilience, which is a concept that has entered into the lexicon on of development thinkers, I think, over the last number of months. Um, here we are, 12 months, 18 months on, if you like, and we're no longer staring into the abyss of the financial crisis, and talk of game-changing seems to have disappeared somewhat. 
Um, we doubt perhaps that the crisis has actually created an opportunity for a big rethink, particularly in international development. Um, I don't think there's any doubt whether it has, that it has posed opportunities to question some fundamental things, but I think the energy and enthusiasm for coming up with alternative models seems to have waned somewhat. And perhaps we doubted in the first place whether or not we needed a game changer. Interesting to reflect. And you'll have heard of a number of viewpoints in the panels today that perhaps explain why this uh, enthusiasm for thinking through alternatives has perhaps waned somewhat. Um, one possible reason is, in fact, the response to the crisis in the end is more about politics than it is ever going to be about economics. Um, what I want to do in the next few minutes, though, is to also pose an, a very modest contribution to why it may be the case that the crisis and the opportunity that, indeed, as James Pennell indicated, has been created by it for a bit of a rethink may not have been taken up um, perhaps as vigorously as we'd like. And I'm going to suggest that has something to do with the way in which research and ideas get their way into policy thinking. Um, as I said, ODI works at the interface of this spectrum in what we might call the twilight zone, or based on Sabina's comments earlier, it might be called the fluffy zone <laughs> of applied research and, and practice. Um, one thing we do know is that a lot of research, including in the, in the field of economics, is generated relatively slowly. I say relatively. Um, some, you know, uh, uh, within matters of months, but some in, within matters of years. Under relatively ideal conditions, and I'm thinking here of a lot of the modeling work that gets done within economics, with major worries on behalf of researchers about potential instrumentalization of research for policy purposes, and they uh, deliberately stay away, therefore, from posing uh, particular policy questions, but would rather drive their research from first, first theoretical principles. And as Sabina also noted in her introduction, that research tends to be, and I would say economics is probably uh, uh, more guilty here, of it's very fractious um, and uh, uh, one in which vested interests tend to play themselves out in more or less useful ways. And I'm just going to quote you something from a book which you may have come across by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett called The Spirit Level, Why Some Societies Are More Equal Than Others, which, is, which states that discoveries are more rapidly accepted in the natural sciences. Physical theories are somehow less controversial than theories about the social world, maybe because social theories are partly theories about ourselves, and as such attract a plethora of individual views and powerful vested interests. And I would say that probably sums up a good deal of the fractiousness that one observes, particularly, I think, within uh, thinking on development economics. Research, policy. Policy, on the other hand, the whole policy world is often shaped under less than ideal conditions. It needs to move fast, sometimes too fast, as I'm sure James and Peter will recognize. It's also shaped by the values, the uh, habits, um, uh, the norms of policymakers themselves, and uh, by the number, the type of political actors that they surround themselves with. Um, often much more than the quality or the quantity of evidence in front of them. And in fact, there's a phrase that we use frequently in ODI, which is that much uh, of the work that we do is about trying to build evidence-based policymaking, where in fact we're dealing with a world in which there is policy-based evidence-making, mm. in which actually the process is in reverse. And in fact, I think it was a book back in the 1980s by Ed Clay and others who said... Um, and I quote that policy uh, is, the whole life of policy is a chaos of purposes and accidents. And I suspect that may be one reason why good ideas, however well researched, don't necessarily always make it into policy making. And while there's also quite a lot of scope for kind of lazy thinking and fluffy thinking making its way into policy making that ends up with all kinds of policy failures. 
Even when there are high-quality ideas, therefore, coming out of the strong disciplines such as economics, there are no guarantees, and I think within development thinking this is perhaps more so than in other fields, that those ideas will be taken up. And in fact, the development landscape, and I hear I completely endorse what Peter said, is filled with policy experiments that have been based very inadequately on evidence. Um, but why is this the case? Well, one of the reasons I think within economics is that the whole field of sort of policy relevant research design seems to be continually dismissed as imprecise, as fluffy, um, as lacking in sufficient theory. And I think that's a real shame. And I think we have to strive much more to come up with research designs guiding economic thinking, which are policy relevant and, dare I even say it, solutions focused. Um, much research in economics simply does not address the fundamental question of how many lives will be affected by a policy change. And I think Sabina said something like this at the beginning. And also, it doesn't often give us the answers about the limits of policy, which again would be as important as knowing the scope for policy change to contribute to a better society. Of course, we're all as well faced with the harsh reality that ideas within the research community but also within the policy community are increasingly sourced from a global space, from networks, from, um, uh, discipline, from outside of uh, single disciplines. And I think this tends to uh, raise a challenge to all of us about how we hold on to the integrity of disciplinary perspectives while recognizing that there has been a rapid democratization of ideas and policymaking within the global space over the last 20 years or so. But it also um, reminds us that any one professional group or organization for that matter in thinking about development that claims a monopoly of ideas um, uh, is, to my mind, um, in an untenable situation. So the kinds of challenge posed by Professor Sen's latest book, but also his accumulated works, points to the need for a greater plural—excuse me, this is a word I find hard to say—plurality of approach um, to work across intellectual boundaries and geographic boundaries on a set of real-world policy problems that rarely know any boundaries. And I think this is our ultimate challenge to bring the relationship between research and policy that much more closely, closer. Uh, Nairi mentioned uh, that somebody might say something about the MDGs in this panel, so I feel obliged to say something just to finish off. Um, the Millennium Development Goals framework have uh, played an incredibly important uh, role as a kind of political manifesto, I think, for change globally. But they were, as Professor Sen outlined, conceived within a context in which notions of rights, accountability, and actually I would even say fairness and justice were firmly part of the thinking. And the goals themselves came out of a technical process which has somehow lost touch with those very important ideas. But actually their achievement is fundamentally about our ability to address issues, in my view, around fairness and equity. So we've got to a situation where I think within development uh, research and, and to some extent within development um, economics, we've become completely obsessed with the measurable and the observable as it's expressed through the goals and completely unable to relate to the fundamental principles on which they're trying to deliver around uh, a just society and a just world. Um, so there are a number of policy areas which are completely missing from our lexicon or dominant thinking in development at the moment around the role, for example, of anti-discrimination as being fundamental to achieve some of the goals around gender equality, maternal mortality, and so on. Um, around progressive taxation, something economists should be busily working around all the time is how can we build a more progressive taxation structure that delivers the kind of equitable results for poor people. And going, you know, beginning to operationalize notions around things like social minima and the rest. You know, where is our intellectual effort in relation to those kinds of things that are going to be fundamental <coughs> for delivering the MDGs? So finally, um, I wouldn't agree entirely with Peter. I believe strongly that theory has a, 
has a very important role to play. There's that phrase, nothing as practical as a really good theory. I believe that profoundly. But it is the ability to combine theoretical and empirical work to understand how policy processes work in order to be able to communicate effectively, to not shy away from pluralism and pragmatism, um, and not to shy away from being very clear about the contribution of, of economic research to thinking about the kind of society that we want to be living in. Well, we've had an enormously rich range of ideas in the last half hour. Um, what I suppose has bound them together um, is the, the, the difficulty of making good policy, the dangers uh, that policy is hijacked by ideologues on the one hand or micromanagers on the other hand, um, the complexity of um, increasing people's welfare and of providing the choice that people want without diminishing the choice of some at the expense of increasing uh, the, the welfare of others. Um, and the, um, the difficulty of prioritizing, of using evidence effectively, um, of trying to uh, both to, to, to uh, trying to focus on what policy really achieves. I want to hear a little bit from Professor Sen, but um, we have to get him out of here um, in about 10 minutes' time. And I'm worried that that doesn't really allow much time for all of you to ask questions. So I'm afraid what I'm going to do is hijack the whole procedure and do one of these awful journalistic things of asking all three panelists to give me their, 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 their top practical um, way in which we, we at this very interesting moment in time, both globally, in the, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, and nationally with an election just a few months off, what is, what is the one thing that they would like to see change, that uh, if they had limitless powers, they would change in either practical ways or in research ways, to move a little closer to the world of Professor Sen's ideas. And then, if you are all brief in your replies, and it's such an impossible question, you'll have to be brief, I'll then get Professor Sen just to wind up with uh, a, a soundbite at the end. This is the Today program in the afternoon. <laughs> so, um, who am I going to pick on first? I think I will go in the same order that I did before. I think I will start off with you, Peter Lilly, or your, your Well, I gave my tip. policy uh, proposal, first of all. Um, so, shall I make a theoretical observation which entirely ignores your question? Uh, and, and that is, on an earlier part of the discussion, there was a presumption that those who believe in the free market, whether as a conversation or as a natural part of human life and desirable part of the development process, uh, have no ethical basis or spurn ethics or that the free market idea is sort of antipathetical to an ethical basis. Um, Professor Sen doesn't say that. They make quite clear, and he quotes uh, the great um, uh, economists like Adam Smith as integrating their uh, ethical basis. All the free market, defenders of the free market say, is not that people have no ethical dimension, that they're purely selfish. Ordinary people pursue their self-interest and pursue altruistic in interests. What we have to do is make sure that those selfish interests are harnessed to the common good, and that's what the free market does. Good, if you put the <laughs> selfish interests in control of the state, there's no guarantee that they will be of benefit to society. Very good. Okay. Um, well, if I had infinite power, I'd probably just relinquish it right away. Um, I mean, this is a temptation you have when you work in development for long enough, uh, especially when you're young, I guess. It's a temptation that, you know, you arrive in a country and it's all messed up and you think, hmm, I could do better than that. And uh, I've learned that that is not true, you know, in most of the time. I mean, just basically, um, uh, so yes, I, I, would, I would say um, uh, more, more choice, more recognition of people's agency and uh, taking... Can't, I think you're... I've, no, I've you're turned it on. And um, basically taking people... Uh, whether they are poor or rich, uh, uh, seriously. Yeah. Good. 
That's a very good line. <laughs> okay, we need to make sure that economics is a spur to action, not a block to action, and an appeal for more collective action. Hmm. Elegantly. You see, the panel has become pithier and pithier <laughs> as I've worked my way around. Now, the, the, the challenge is yours, Professor Sen, to just to wind up in a, a few sentences. Well, my challenge is made somewhat easier by Francis. You're telling me that my expulsion from the room... My expulsion from the room is much more important than my speech. <laughs> um, but I enjoyed the discussion very much. Um, I'm going to react a little against your question because it's a kind of question I, I'm kind of, uh, Peter might think it's ideology, I'm opposed to namely what is one thing to do, okay? Um, that's a very good question when there's only one thing you can do. Um, okay. Uh, okay, now, yeah. Um, uh, but it's, if you can do only one thing but not others, then that's a good question to, to pursue. But we typically can do lots of things, you see. And when, they, when I land in Bombay and somebody says, what are the three things you would like to do in <laughs> India? And, uh, and is it child poverty? Is it undernourishment? Is that illiteracy? I have to say, no, I have at least 125 things to do. <laughs> so I'm not sure I'm going to fall for that. But I, will, I see where you're coming from, namely focus. And I think that's important, and it, it allows me to hit my comment on one of the questions that came up. That is the question of plurality. I think it came up in... I'm just in, going to move your microphone. Right? Oh, I see, I'm not succeeding, am I? I, I put it here. <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess I was trying to um, look at the panelists, and this is compatible with looking at the <laughs> panelists. Um, the, um, I think the plurality issue is extremely important because uh, there are going to be a number of things that come up uh, uh, that demand our attention, and we have to judge between them. But the first point is to recognize that there exists a plurality, which is very central, and it's, um, it's only ideology would make you say that only forget all the others, just this one counts. But then there's a second thing that in that context you also have to, after recognizing the plurality, ask the question of evaluation, namely how do you weight them. Face all that explicitly, and that's why in the context of James's discussion, I was saying that I would emphasize not the state, but the public discussion on it uh, as a supplement to the market. Market as if as a system competes with another way of deciding, which is public discussion. That comes up in the capability literature too. Some of our colleagues have tried to argue for a kind of special list of things that's arrived not on the basis of public discussion, but on the basis of intelligent reflection, like Aristotle did, and arrived at something, which I would tend to reject on grounds that I think public discussion is central. And the question of waiting is very important. I remember when before, 20, more than 20 years ago, before the Berlin Wall came out, chatting, I, I went a couple of times to East Germany before that, and uh, trying to argue with the, on the, in the perspective of freedom, which, by the way, I think it would convince you that I'm a renegade, uh, is very important in Marx, that no one discusses freedom as much as he did, including in his PhD uh, thesis, uh, Marx's PhD thesis, contrary to popular belief, he did write a PhD thesis on Democritus uh, and Epicurus. And he took Aristotelian side uh, on that, and freedom played a very big part in that. So when we were discussing, I was told, but there are many freedoms that you have in East Germany which you don't have in West. And I was given one example, which is absolutely right, that is you could turn right when the traffic light is red and you are facing it, as you can in... Boston, but you can't in New York. Uh, and, and there in, in, in uh, again, at Bostonians, I always feel pity for New Yorkers waiting for the traffic light to change when there's nothing on the other side, you can turn easily, and it doesn't allow. East Germany allowed that freedom, West Germany did not. But you require a fair amount of effort to place it in a greater importance to whether you have the freedom to climb a wall or not which was the, the manifest issue there. So I think the issue of plurality, which is going to come up, I think there have been interesting discussion about not being ideological, 
taking approaches that take into account a variety of consideration. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and I think in all of them, if we, and it also relates to the question that there are going to be many things, not one thing we are going to do. And there would be what relative importance we attach to them. That's really not so much what is the one thing I end, end up saying is most important, and I think I probably won't say any of them to be most important than others under all conditions, but what are the alternative things that we have to consider? Not alternative, they're, they're complementary things to consider, and how do we go about it? That is not a kind of Tory, Labour, right-left distinction, that's a very basic distinction. And I think if I may just end up with one practical comment, um, the, um, I think one of the reasons, I think um, uh, this came up earlier in the discussion as to why the, um, the huge opportunity that the crisis looked like, namely to have a game changer, didn't quite happen. I think part of it is that there, it was not a sufficiently, um, sufficiently critically engaged discussion as to what is, was involved. I think for one thing, um, since people were so lined up in neoclassical versus Keynesian, this was seen just as a huge vindication of Keynes. But as I tried to argue in an article in the New York Review of Books, for which I paid a heavy price in the form of a tax, that Keynes had less to say on social support and social security than Bismarck had. There uh, is almost nothing to say on that. And in fact, a neoclassical opponent, namely Pigou, who might have had a wrong theory of unemployment, was constantly boring everyone, was talking about the role of poverty. He was the one who, yeah, Atkinson measure of poverty is in, in fact a variation of Pigou's measure via Dalton that came to be accepted. So I think there was a, and the, the kind of question that a lot of people were raising at that time, including Tony and others from the left, who, um, what is the role of democracy? Can America go to a health reform more easily if, if people come to dominate the, the public space in the way they have by death camps and so on? Why is it that the Tory and, and Labour can agree on the importance of national health service, whereas you get, you'll find it very difficult to find a single conservative in America saying anything good to say about healthcare. I think it raises a question about the nature of the society. And it's really not the Keynes territory at all. I think it's, it's a completely different territory. And I think if we had got to that territory there, we would have got more out of the, the, the crisis than we actually did. Thank you.